we all profoundly believe that everybody, absolutely everybody, is entitled to health and education service delivery no matter where they're born. Even the greatest non-profits in the world spend their lives worrying about where the next dollar is going to come from. I've always believed that there's amazing ability, magnificence in people. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's episode features Audette Exel. Audette is the chair and founder of Adara Group. Audette has received many awards for her work to bridge the worlds of finance with philanthropy. She founded Adara Group with two different parts, a corporate advisory business and an international development nonprofit that is funded by Adara. Previously, Audette served as the managing director of a bank in Bermuda. Welcome, Audette. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Very nice to be here with you. So let's dive in. You have described yourself as an activist and a social justice advocate, but you've also said that after your law degree, you realized that you didn't understand money would would be able to create social change. What led you to that realization? Yeah, good question. Yep. Um, uh, I had a blinding moment of realization at the end of my law degree. I was studying law thinking I would do human rights and social justice activism. And it was actually a chat with a, a young guy who was studying law who is in, whose purpose of his life was going to be to make money. And he that conversation gave me the realization that there was a whole world of people out there that I did not understand and I needed to uh, realize I needed to get my hands around understanding power and capital. So that led me in a completely different direction in my life, and I'm very glad it did. And you went on to work in finance, and you know, as Ed said, become the, the managing director of one one of Bermuda's three banks. Um, what did you like about working in finance, and and how did you, how did that kind of transition you to where you are now? Yes, as, as, as um, always happens, I think when you step outside of your tribe, you recognize your own prejudice. So when I moved from the world of social activism um, into first law, then banking and insurance, I had a moment of realization that, gosh, there was, it was actually wonderful. The markets are fun, deals are interesting, um, and there's a huge amount of intellectual capital uh, in the financial world. So um, it was a very good thing for me to understand that um, uh, I had been prejudiced in the way that I thought about the stat sector. Um, and um, once I was in the sector, I realized how powerful the sector was. So not only did trillions of dollars flow through the financial services industry, but a huge amount of power is exerted and influence is exerted through that industry. So that was all um, a wonderful part of my learning in terms of, uh, you know, as I, as I grew from being a service provider to balance sheets to running one, it was all part of my learning is how I can use power and capital, financial services to affect social change. So it's been a wonderful, very lucky journey for me. So what's it like living in Bermuda? 
Bermuda is a beautiful place. It's a privilege to live in anybody else's country. Um, I lived in Hong Kong. I lived in Bermuda for 14 years. Bermuda is only an hour and a half away from New York and six hours away um, from London. And it is the largest reinsurance market in, in the world. It's larger than New York. Reinsurers are the insurance companies that insure other insurance companies. So it's a huge capital market. Uh, very substantive um, and um, and a very high quality place um, to live. So I got to do some fantastic work in the reinsurance and banking markets and I also got to live on the beach. So it doesn't get much better than that, right? That sounds pretty good. When I think of a banker or a managing director of a bank, I always think of somebody walking into the bank with a briefcase and as they walk through the hollowed sort of offices, people say, good morning, Miss Excel." Good morning, Ms. Excel. Good morning, Ms. Excel. As you go to the elevator and then go up to your powerful office where you're going to do your huge <laughs> deals. Is that what it was like? Uh, not exactly. It's a very friendly place to work, but it's a serious market. So, And it was a, a huge privilege to get the chance to, um, to be the managing director of a publicly traded bank as a young woman. Um, and to learn about how to manage a balance sheet and how to think about growing a business, you know, all those tools of trade that we need. Um, I also chaired the Bermuda Stock Exchange during that time. Wow. And I worked with an incredible team, and, I, and so I learned that you can unleash people um, uh, if you're lucky enough to, to be chosen to lead them. Um, and I learned how to think about um, managing balance sheets, and that set me up for my, my next career, if you like, which has been as a social entrepreneur. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of using your skills for good. Um, and that's something that, you know, me, myself coming out of finance, I was really inspired to do. So let's turn to Adara Group. You have two parts. It's a traditional financial advisory business. And then there's a nonprofit side that Adara funds, focused on maternal health and families in the developing world. Why did you choose this model? Um, I chose the model actually directly from thinking about models of power and, and systems change when I was running the bank. So when, when you, without getting too geekish about this, when you run a bank, you think all day about asset liability matching. And so, uh, you know, what, what's coming in on one side and going out on the other side and the spread in between. And I started to take those eyes, that learning, and look at the not-for-profit sector. And I realized but I've never seen a worse asset liability mismatch in my life. So even the greatest nonprofits in the world spend their lives worrying about where the next dollar is going to come from, when actually the work they do is enormously complicated and they should be uh, thinking about how do they do their work to a best practice standard of excellence. Even the best in the world are caught in that trap, and I think it's a, a trap of structure and construct. So what I wanted to do with the DARA was try out a slightly different model um, and see what would happen if I embedded a business as a revenue-generating machine into the heart of a, of a not-for-profit I set up at the same time so I could hire great not-for-profit people and tell them to think about the work and not worry about the money and hire great bankers and to tell them to think relentlessly, relentlessly about making money in the market but to hand the money over the hall to their non-profit colleagues every month. So it was, it's about models, and, and, and I'm very interested in models of change. And, and so Adara was, in a small way, my attempt to try a slightly new model um, uh, to see if that would work and if that would change the way that service could be delivered to people in poverty. And have you found your nonprofit to be more efficient because they spend less time fundraising and worried about fundraising? 
Oh, without question. Um, I, and I just should say right at the outset, I don't at all not. Nonprofits have brilliant fundraising teams and who, and, and you have to, who are in that world. And we also have been lucky enough to have a lot of people stand with us and a lot of donors. But having the business, we only have, so we're quite a big organization and we only have um, a couple of people world, worldwide who, who do any kind of fundraising or, or donor management, partner management for us. Um, the thing that's really made a difference in the structure is the businesses, because they guarantee the financial viability of the not-for-profit, the, the not-for-profit is able to do great, great deep work driven by communities on the ground and our staff on the ground, not driven by donor desire. So we're never in the situation when we have a donor saying, I'd really like to build a school in, you know, in the name of my wife, or I think that what's needed on this project um, uh, is um, a, a, a new hospital when actually we know what's needed is sanitation and hygiene training or we know that it's maternal newborn child health work in the community. So it's allowed a level of development integrity to the work because the business has stood quietly um, or sat in the middle actually as a little engine that could, the funding engine, and made sure that all those costs are picked up. Um, so the, the development team, the not-for-profit team, have been able to get on with doing what they do brilliantly. Can you give us an example of some of the work that you do? I know it's mostly in Nepal and Uganda. Yep, it's, it's absolutely. And you, now you have to stop me talking because I'm so passionate about all this work. <laughs> the two streams of work that we run. You we go. are amongst the world's leaders. Okay, ready, set, go. <laughs> We're amongst the world's leaders in um, care to pr- premature babies and low birth weight babies in places without consistent electricity supply. So um, in, in that world, facilities-based care for, for babies at risk and mums, um, we work with tiny wee babies that are born um, uh, through in, in very remote uh, low-resource settings um, uh, through neonatal intensive care work, maternity work, uh, facilities-based tertiary-level care to, the, to those newborns. And we're amongst the – have been doing that amongst the longest in the world – um, so our work, all our mistakes as well as our successes and our deep partnerships um, in Uganda are now able to inform so many others um, around the world who are doing that work. And we, we, we really focus on building centres of excellence. And i give you an example of how important that work is. When I first went to this place 22 years ago where you know we began work and have been ever since, 20 babies a week were dying of entirely preventable causes in the, in the compound of what was almost a clinic, a clinic hospital, including, for instance, if the baby had jaundice, they would hold the baby out in the sun to try to, to get it warm. And in America and in Australia, there's a, you just whack the baby under a heating lamp. They would hold them out in the sun or put them in cardboard boxes um, on the shelves to try to get some sun. And if there was no sun, if it was rainy season, they died. And now we have an incredible neonate intensive care unit, big maternity unit, huge community outreach. So in a hospital we partner with that touches the lives, the catchment area of 700,000 people a year, training centres, centres of excellence. So that's the maternal newborn health work. The other work which exhibits largely in Uganda is very, very remote uh, health and education, community development work. So there are 16 schools in Nepal that we work with. And to give you a sense of what remote means in our world, the most remote of those, which is a model school for the whole country, top five school in the whole country now, is 25 days walk from the nearest Nepali road. Wow. So right wow. up on the, yes, <laughs> very beautiful up there. You have to be fit to get up there to see the work. But um, 
uh, you know, that's part of our, our passion and our belief at Adara, whether you're an investment banker working in our investment banking team or you're an educational specialist or you're a neonate specialist, we all profoundly believe that everybody, absolutely everybody, is entitled to health and education service delivery no matter where they're born. So it shouldn't matter if you're born on the Nepali-Tibetan border or you're born in the bush in Uganda or you're born in Dallas or you're born in Sydney, you're entitled to health and education services. And that's what we, we that, that belief underpins all the work. And, um, and it's been a very joyous journey, as you can imagine. Does the social impact work that you do fuel the success of the, the financial advisory side of your business? Do you think that the employees are energized by it? Oh, without question. Um, you don't work with us unless you're totally focused on purpose. So our businesses are solely for the purpose of generating revenue for the not-for-profit. So um, I'm the founder of the businesses. We have two of them. Um, I'm a volunteer to the businesses. They're not there to make profit. They're there to generate revenue to hand across the hall every month. So if you come to work with us, we do. We are lucky enough to be working still in the very high top end of the financial services market. So we're doing great deals and we're working with leaders in, in corporate Australia. But if you work with us, you're only with us for one reason, um, which is to use your skills to generate revenue to fund the work that we do with people in poverty. So, and to 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 answer the point of your question, I have been astonished over the years at the quality of people. Soon as whenever we advertise a job, whether it's on the the not for profit side or the corporate advice side, you know we we have astonishing numbers of people, very high quality people wanting to work for us. Um, and that's because I believe there's a huge need, unmet need, um, in people to use their mastery for purpose, and we provide that. So there's a lot of hard work here, but everybody is completely, completely connected to the one purpose. On the advisory side, are there deals you turn down because they're too dirty, <laughs> bad? I don't know. Evil? <laughs> Very good question. For evil, yes. Yeah. So all the the, um, the great binaries, you know, evil, know. And, I... evil and good. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. So we run our own, if you like, I mean, the, the rise of the environmental social governance movement, the rise of socially responsible investing, um, and I know Beyond Capital are, are, are very focused on this. That's a, a, a market trend that we have embraced and run through our own businesses for years. Um, so, um, for actually since inception. So, have we turned away deals over the years uh, for people that we thought were hurting the world, not helping it? Yes, we have. Um, and sometimes that's really hard when you're managing a cash flow and you're responsible for tens of thousands of people getting help in it and, <laughs> and education services. But it stood us in very good stead. Um, integrity is part of our brand. Um, and I think you have to be really, really thoughtful about the business that you take on uh, if you want to build a, an A-grade business um, with high integrity levels. But thankfully, that doesn't happen too much. The the Doctor Evils don't walk in my door too much these days. But uh, <laughs> we, we've seen them. <laughs> we've seen them, given them cups of tea, and sent them out the door uh, in the past. On the flip side of that coin, I think that. I um, would love to hear if, if the, the work that you're doing in the, in the mission-driven approach has helped you attract clients. Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? You know, the investment banking world, so we were in the M&A advisory business um, at, at the top end of town. Um, and so we, and we advise on equity capital markets deals. You know, we advise on complex commercial problem solving. So these are um, 
people don't hire um, a corporate advice firm for senior advice or wise counsel because they think they're nice people. So we have to compete head-to-head with the other boutique corporate advice businesses, and we do that and have done that successfully. We're very respectful of everybody who's in the market and our competitors. So I think what the the purpose piece has done, um, it's given us a brand, as I said before, of integrity, um, and I think it, it differentiates us. I don't think it's the reason people choose us. I think that I think clients like it. Um, so it's a nice to have, not a must have, um, but it's, uh, it certainly, um, differentiates us in this market. Um, and, and that's got to be a good thing, but you, you know, you have to be right on your game to be in the corporate advice markets. You have to be as good as better than your competitor and the offering that you're making to your client. And so we're totally focused on that. Um, and the, the purpose piece, um, the wider context of Adara, um, it's a secondary, it's a shine, it's a, it's a halo, if you like, um, rather than the centerpiece in terms of that business. Well, and then there's always the added benefit of when you're negotiating your fees, saying, like, come on, don't you want to help the kids in Africa? <laughs> the babies. <laughs> the babies. I try, not, I try hard not to strong arm my clients about fees. I think you're far better just to do a great job and have them happy to pay you for the value that you, you've created. But, um, yeah, I don't know how much that, that runs through. I, uh, one thing that has made a massive difference uh, at the, the second corporate advice business, which is a, an evolution of my thinking, I launched it five years ago, is a very unusual model. Um, and it has a panel of 15 of Australia's most famous bankers. So I've got, for instance, the head of investment banking for Goldman Sachs, got the head of investment banking for UBS, um, uh, I've got the head of investment banking for Citigroup, um, the most famous directors, chairs and directors in the country. So the 15 of them sit on a panel and they work for Adara leading our deal pro bono at the same time as they lead their home firms. It's a very unusual model. Um, so if you like, I've got the most senior people in the country working in pairs, leading deals in the M&A corporate finance markets. So very, very unusual. They would never do that if it wasn't for the fact that this is a per- mastery for purpose model and they love what we do. Um, but And it's actually, I'm very excited about this. We're only four and a half years in and we're, we've really got some runs on the board with the model and the, the panel are incredibly engaged and proud of what they're doing, um, and it's a model I want to bring into Wall Street. So just watch this space because I believe that investment bankers um, need a construct, need a way to use their skills directly for purpose, and currently they don't really have it. So um, I'm trying to crack that nut down in Australia and then bring it bring it into your big financial services markets. I think that's really exciting, and it's something that really stood out to me about what you were saying previously is the the way to attract great talent and also motivate great talent through purpose. So that's, that's excellent. Um, we'd love it's hugely to, powerful. to hear more about you. Tell us what your mornings look like. <laughs> what gets you ready for your day? Oh my goodness. God gets me ready for my day. Oh my goodness. I'm not a, I'm not a balanced person. I'm a passion person. 
So um, when I, whenever I get asked these questions about how do you find work-life balance, I've realized that people have picked the wrong person to ask. So what gets me ready for my day? First of all, a passion to serve the poor. So, you know, my, the work is incredibly meaningful. I love what I do. I love my teams. Um, and that gets me – there hasn't been a day in 22 years where I haven't woken up ready to go again, even when it's hard. And sometimes this work is really, really hard. So first of all, I'm filled with passion. Um, I'm This morning, I threw myself out of bed in chaos. And the first thing that I do is grab a really good cup of coffee. <laughs> I believe in America, you don't fully understand what a good cup of coffee is. But in Australia, it's a, it's a deep, deep in our culture, thanks to the Italian Australians and the Greek Australians. Um, so what gets me going is my passion, a cup of coffee, my family, my friends. Um, I love nature. I'm a New Zealander. Um, I'm a bit of a hiker and a walker, um, but I'm I'm driven um, to have a life of, of service, to at least try to change the world a wee bit, a tiny wee bit, uh, heading in the right direction, to stand with those who are trying to do that. Um, and that's what really motivates me. But basically, I'm living in organized chaos. That's certainly what my team here would tell you. So what would your team say about your leadership style? How would they describe you? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? You you never really know the answer to that. I hope that what my team would say um, is that my leadership style is about unleashing talent. I've always believed that there's amazing ability, magnificence in people. And if you lead them, if you let them step outside of their cage and open them to that, they're extraordinary. So um, so I, I think they would, I hope they would recognize that. Um uh, so my leadership style is very collaborative and, and I think enthusiastic. Um, I hope also they'd say that I'm kind. I think kindness is a really hard thing. Um, and I think if we model it in our leadership style, again, we create workplaces that people want to come to. It's also the right thing to do. Um, and finally, I think they probably would say that I am pretty directed. I'm very focused. Um, at, on the work that we do, um, I, I bring a lot of intention to the work. Um, so that probably drives some of them completely crazy. <laughs> but, and, uh, but I, uh, and finally, I guess I hope they would say that I laugh out loud at work and I do even when things are tough because once you lose your sense of humor, really, and you start taking yourself too seriously, you're pretty much doomed, I think. So true. Have you ever done the hike up to Uganda, up to the 25-day the Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm in project sites all the time. So that's what drives me. So when I set a DARA up, I spent a year on the road and trying to learn about international development. And yes, and I spent um, weeks, weeks up on the Tibetan and Nepali border in this amazing place where we started our most remote work. And same thing in Uganda in the bush. So I'm in Nepal and Uganda at least once a year. I've just come back from Nepal. Um, and it, it completely, it's like plugging myself back into the current. So when I'm getting exhausted and a deal doesn't look like it's going to close or I'm worried about cash flow or I'm feeling despairing about the state of the planet, all I need to do is get on project site and sit myself on the ground with a bunch of midwives in the middle of the bush and see the work and, and talk about what's being achieved and what we still have to do um, and I'm ready to go again. So, yep, I'm, I know the pro- our projects. I smell our projects. I know my team's. Um, it's incredibly important to me to be able to access the work, even though my greatest uh, job and my role in the organization is to keep making money to keep it all going. Digging a little deeper into your passion, why did you select Uganda and Nepal? 
<laughs> yeah, good question. It was insanity, actually. If Uganda, Nepal, and setting the first corporate finance up in, uh, a business in Bermuda, it was the hubris of youth, I think, um, <laughs> and the inability to, <laughs> to have a strategy or see forward. Um, but loosely, um, I, set, I, I, I was seeking out the world's remotest places. I wanted to work in places with the lowest quality of living uh, uh, indicators, places that were landlocked, um, because if you don't have access to a port, things are so much tougher for you. Um, and um, and I had had a personal connection to both countries. I trekked in Nepal, and I had had the great honour of meeting the First Lady of Uganda at Davos at the World Economic Forum many, many years ago in the early 90s. So I was connected to both countries, and they filled my screen, if you like. They fitted my matrix. The truth is with this work, you could move 100 miles down the road and start again. And I agonize, and, and you know, the need would be the same. And I agonize about that a lot. Um, and because the need is enormous, 800 million of our brothers and sisters around the world do not eat twice a day. So um, I've had to come to terms with the fact I can't save the whole world. But what I can do with my business skills is fund amazing work in centers of excellence and training centers and help as much as I can others to copy what we're doing or to support what we're doing. And in the process of that, obviously, touched tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably now millions of lives. But that's why Nepal and Uganda um, could have been <laughs> could have been India and Kenya. Um, it wasn't, but they're both magical countries. And, and, and the work streams, as I say, that the service and the knowledge sharing that we're now doing touches many more lives around the world than just the countries where our projects are. And what are some of the lessons that you've learned, maybe few key lessons from having been doing your work for 22 years. Yeah. This is, if, if you ask me what are the mistakes you've made, I could keep talking now and you could go away and have lunch or dinner or come back again and I'd still be talking. Um, there have been a lot. Um, a couple of succinct lessons. Um, I've spent 22 years now as a businesswoman sitting on the intersection of purpose, profit and purpose. And that is a knife edge. Um, and it, 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 it requires you to hold a great deal of integrity and have absolute clarity on your objectives on both sides of that. So that's one key lesson I've learned and it's something I talk to all these amazing impact um, and you know, new social entrepreneurs about, which is be very clear on what you're trying to achieve across both sides of that equation. Otherwise, you wake up and find out you're just, you're just a branding exercise, you're greenwashing. Um, so that's, that's the first piece. The second is, um, again, coming back to clarity. When you're, um, when you're working out of construct, the DARA is a model that uh, in its time, 22 years ago, nobody understood. We, we think as human beings and in our business life in silos. And, and what I've learned is if you break out of your silo, if you start to think cross, you know, the NGO world would say cross in a cross-cutting way, if you start to think out of construct, um, amazing things can happen. If you start to blow the lid off, of course you can run a business for social purpose. You don't have to run it for your shareholders. You know, Of course you can tie an NGO to an investment bank. Incredible things happen when you uncap your thinking. So that's another lesson I say to the, the newbies in the space is let your thinking be uncapped and think completely outside of construct. And then as best you can try to be clear about what you're doing because when you work out of construct, people find it very, very hard to understand you. Um, so there's, there's a couple just off the top of my head, but there are many. It's been a journey of joy and tears. Yeah, I'm really inspired 
by your your vision of Wall Street and and what you're doing um, as well with kind of leaders of finance industry currently. Um, and I think what you said about being clear about purpose um, and risking green, blue, pink washing is really important in today's time where purpose is in the zeitgeist and brands are using it or abusing it in certain ways for their own benefit. And um, I hope that the work that you do with Wall Street brings more authenticity to some of the larger institutions. I mean, one that stands out to me, I'm looking at the Chase Tower here in Dallas. They're number one on the climate report for lending to evil, as Ed might say, or dirty companies. And so I think that that advice is incredible for, I think, for any business. Well, like the cool business club in that building is called the Petroleum Club. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Do you know, I think, speaking of zeitgeist, I think people can sense around the world, feel and sense authenticity and are hungry for it. Mm -hmm. And um, in the age of spin, there's a, there's a massive rejection of spin going on. I don't think the political elite have actually figured this out yet. Um, but and, I, and some of the corporate elite haven't figured it out either. Um, but in the way that you're describing, you know, the Petroleum Club, people know um, uh, if your brand is nothing but spin. Yeah. They really know. Um, and I, I think the really hopeful thing for the world is people are going to be very attracted to authenticity in business. They're going to, they, they, we intuit it almost, um, and and we intuit integrity. Um, and I think that that is, is is going to really. So the great companies of the future will be companies that do this incredibly authentically and with integrity. Um, and there's going to be a bit of a train wreck for those who. Um, are holding themselves out to be model corporate citizens and, of course, at the same time creating harm. So we're in for a very interesting decade in this, in this regard. There's going to be, I, I would predict, there'll be quite a divide between the two pieces of the sector. Yeah. I, I, I feel really connected to that message, and I think that that's very, very key and very wise. It's a tough pivot for them, though. They've got a huge business, and they've got to, even if they 5% reduce their Emissions, it probably makes a bigger difference than a lot of other businesses, but it's an interesting subject for sure. You yeah. know, they, I'm not sure I would want one of those jobs. No, I mean, mm. I think what Odette points out that, that stands out to me is that it, you can tell when it's not authentic. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we can make our choices and, as and, consumers. And we can make our choices. We're lucky enough to have a choice. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, you know, my life has been lived at, I began living it on the, in the social activism um, side of the spectrum. I think these things are a spectrum. And I decided, um, and, and my life now has really exhibited itself in engagement. So I decided I'm going to engage with Wall Street. I'm engaged with financial markets. And I'm going to use that power and capital to affect social change. So, and, in fact, our tagline is Bridging Worlds. So I try really not to function in a binary way, the bad guys, the good guys. Um, and there are many companies in the world, there are many big companies that are slowly changing course and need great people there to help make that change. Um, so um, we don't necessarily have to make purist um, uh, decisions. We can make great decisions. So I'm going to go inside that big company and I'm going to push a, a um, you know, responsible investment policy. I'm going to push an environmental action policy. I'm going to, you know, you, you can actually make 
significant change inside. So, and that's a valid choice. Um, I, I sit on the board, um, the way I make my living is I sit on the board of Australia's largest listed insurance company. So, you know, we're living right in the center of weather events, uh, extreme weather, climate change. And actually, it's been a fantastic thing to sit atop um, $100 billion balance sheet as a director, real privilege, and watch that company and be part of that company as a director um, starting to really put its hands around these huge issues become, and become a signatory of the UN Global Compact, create, uh, start to report under the TFCD, start to set up a climate change action plan. Um, so incredible things are possible when we engage. Um, so, so I think all, all, almost all choices are pretty valid, but isn't it, aren't we lucky to have a choice about what we do with our lives? Absolutely. So as we wrap up, we'd love to hear what, you, what mark you think Adar will leave on the world? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Is that legacy? I'm I, I, I'm 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 very happy to be just a breath on the planet. So I don't feel an urge to have a mark that will get made on the planet. In terms of Adara, you know, Adara has already made a massive mark on the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have been unleashed and who are now change makers in their own right, many of them. A lot of the kids we work with um, in remote areas who, you know, have now had education and have vocationally um, trained um, are out there making their societies a better place. I, I hope that Adara serves as a small example of what is possible when you come together and you're very united in your passion to make change. Um, and and I hope that there are some youngsters out there that look at what we do and say, if that Kiwi girl could do that, I can do something much better. I, I hope we're a small part of the learning of others who want to make their world a better place and, and use their skills, whatever those skills are, to do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I won't be around to know <laughs> how that all unfolds, but, but that's what I hope. I mean, Adara, Adara has a huge future ahead of it um, and it will do amazing things um, that I'm sure I can't possibly see um, at the moment. And that's, that's a very nice feeling to have been a part of, of lighting that flame. Well, I'm sure I'm not the first to say that I'm inspired by you, so I will say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you're doing the same thing by the sound. You're over there and you here you are reaching out to, to interview some Aussie Kiwi about what she's doing. So, you know, thank you for, for telling great stories and for trying to run your own business um, uh, with integrity and to make an impact. We're, we're all standing together to try and make our world a better place, I think. Absolutely. Thank you, Audette. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear, hear your story and hear more about your company. Yeah, absolute delight to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.